0: I do want to invite you to take your Bibles and join me in the book of Acts. We're going to be in Acts 19 this morning, looking at the first 20 verses. Uh, if you're using the, the, the blue ESV Bible and the seatbacks in front of you, you should be able to find our text on page 928. And the title of our sermon this morning, which I just couldn't be prouder of this title, is uh, Baptisms and Beatings. And... Uh, and our keywords for our worshipers in training are uh, John, Spirit, and Prevail. We're in Acts 19. Look at the first 20 verses. Last week, we, we saw that after his, his ministry in the city of Corinth, Paul had sailed for his sending church in Syrian Antioch by way of... Ephesus. Paul then left uh, his friends that he had met in Corinth, Priscilla and Aquila. He had left them in Ephesus uh, after a rather brief and uneventful stay. After Ephesus, Paul visited the church in Jerusalem, and then he returned home to Antioch. And then almost immediately, it seems, was sent back out on a third missionary journey which was where we left Paul last week, but we pick back up with his ministry today. But while Paul was um, out from Ephesus, uh, returning home and going back out again, uh, we saw Priscilla and Aquila and their ministry there in Ephesus to a man named Apollos, whom Luke describes for us in the, the end of chapter 18 as "...an eloquent man, competent in the Scriptures, having been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit. He spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John." And so the godly pair heard Apollos' teaching and took him aside one day, and probably for many days, they taught him the way of God more accurately." From there, Apollos went on to Achaia and ended up in the city of Corinth where Paul had been, and he proved to be a great help to those who had come to believe the gospel through Paul's ministry. In our passage today, while Apollos is in Corinth, Paul, having set out on his third missionary journey, makes an inland return to Ephesus as he had promised to do in 1821. And there, when he returns to Ephesus, he finds disciples, quite evidently having been taught by Apollos prior to Priscilla and Aquila's teaching him the way of God more accurately. And so what we see in our passage today is that Paul meets these disciples. He provides further insights to these men regarding the nature of the gospel, and in particular, the person and work of the Holy Spirit, which leads to their baptisms into the name of Jesus whereby they receive the Holy Spirit. From there, Paul begins his own ministry, which will uh, go on for some time there in Ephesus. Uh, It will take place over the course of several years. Um, And as Luke has so often done in this book, he reminds his reader that the kingdom of God cannot and will not be conquered. So I want to read these verses Uh, And then we will outline them, give an outline for the sermon, and then get to work. Paul um, is in Ephesus, and this is what Luke writes, beginning in 19, verse 1. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism. And he said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in or into the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, The Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about twelve men in all. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. And when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits. Saying, "I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims, seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this." But the evil spirit answered them, "Jesus, I know, and Paul, I recognize, but who are you?" And the man in whom the evil spirit, and the man in whom was the evil spirit, leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. And fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Uh, There are really just two parts to this sermon. First, in verses 1 to 7, we are going to see Paul's support and furthering of what Apollos had accomplished in his ministry in Ephesus. And second, in verses 8 through 20, we'll see Paul's own ministry officially begin, resulting in yet another triumph of God's kingdom over the kingdom of darkness. Look with me, then, in the first place, if you will, verses 1 to 7, where we see Paul bring about a completion of sorts to Apollos' initial ministry in Ephesus, whereby a church is uh, really properly formed and established in that city. Upon his arrival, as we mentioned, Paul finds disciples there in Ephesus. Uh, But for some reason, uh, and we're not told exactly what it was, whether because of things he had heard about Apollos' ministry before, or whether it was because of the conversations he had with the men themselves, but he's prompted to ask whether they had received the Holy Spirit when they believed. To which they reply, not only no, but heck no. We haven't even heard that there is a Spirit. Now, we need to be careful in exactly understanding what Luke means when he quotes them as saying that. Because as in some way disciples of John the Baptist, um, they would have certainly known of the Spirit's existence. John himself, and we'll look at this in a bit, John himself proclaimed that he proclaimed with particular clarity that the coming of the Spirit would be accomplished through the ministry of the Messiah. And so what they must mean, or what they seem to mean, is that they had not heard that the Spirit had come in fulfillment of John's prophecy. They were utterly ignorant of what had happened at Pentecost, in other words. And so Paul inquires further about their baptisms. And he learns that it was into John's baptism that they were baptized, and it was not into Christ. He explains that John's baptism was a baptism of repentance, meaning that it pointed people to their need of being uh, cleansed and forgiven. They need to be cleansed from their sins by the Messiah who was to come after him. John, as we'll see, was the forerunner of the Messiah, and so his baptism pointed forward to the Messiah who was to come. And so these men, now having been taught by Paul and having learned the the way of God more accurately, as Apollos did, they were baptized into the name of Jesus, and they received the Holy Spirit and began prophesying and speaking in tongues. And Luke records for us that there were about 12 men in all. So what's happening here? Think of it this way. Acts 19 is the final piece of a puzzle that we've been putting together since Acts 2. So if you're visiting with us today, uh, you're at a bit of a disadvantage, but I'm going to try to uh, sum it up well enough for you that it'll, it'll all make sense. Back in Acts 2, we saw the resurrected, ascended, and newly crowned king of the universe, Jesus. He baptized his church made up of Jewish believers located in the city of Jerusalem, he baptized them with his Holy Spirit, consecrated them, and empowered them as, priestly, as a priestly nation to engage in the service and expansion of his temple kingdom into all the world. Right In Acts 1-8, he had told them, when this Spirit comes, you will move from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of The earth, and so that's what we've been witnessing as we walk through this book of Acts in Acts eight and nine. Many Samaritans, those who had uh, they were half Jewish and half Gentile in their uh, heritage, they were brought into the kingdom through the ministry of Philip and the laying on the of hands by the apostles Peter and John. And then in Acts ten and eleven, the kingdom of God receives Gentiles in mass through Peter's ministry at Cornelius' house. And each of these events in Acts 2, um, 8, and 10, they involve a group of people receiving the Holy Spirit through the ministry of the apostles. um, And in two of them, in, in Acts 2 and in Acts 10, as well as in Acts 19, there's this phenomenon of speaking in tongues that occurs. We're not told that that happened in Acts 8. It may have, but Luke doesn't record it for us. Nevertheless, Acts 19 is very clearly connected to what has been happening throughout this, the flow of this book of Acts starting in Acts 2 at Pentecost. But the question remains, how? What is the connection? Well, to answer that question, we need to make sure that we have a firm grip on the nature of John's baptism, which features prominently here in this passage. That will help us to understand how this passage Connects to Pentecost, and then it will also help us to understand rightly how we are to understand this passage specifically and also the the work of Pentecost more broadly. So, John's baptism takes us all the way back to Luke chapter 3, verse 3 and following. There, we read that John went about proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. In other words, as I've already mentioned, John's baptism was anticipatory. It was forward-looking. It was a forward-looking baptism in the hope of the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. Luke, there in Luke 3, applies Isaiah 40, 3-5, to John's ministry. And he quotes it. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make His paths straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of god so john's ministry was preparatory but it was also a bit uh, polemical it was there was some debating that he would do some arguing if you will luke writes in chapter 3 verse 8 of his gospel he's john said therefore to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him. Imagine saying this to someone coming to a baptism. John was a wild man. You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. And so it's very important to understand John's ministry was to, uh, it was to a Jewish uh, audience. that he, It was to Jews, to so those who could trace their heritage back to Abraham. And so John, in his ministry to them, preparing them for the, the Christ who would come as the seed of Abraham to bring the blessing of Abraham to the Gentiles, he warns them. He says, don't take refuge in your identity as children of Abraham. Don't say to yourselves, we've got Abraham as our daddy. The old covenant was about to be left as a smoking crater in the ground. He says there in Luke 3, he says the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So John really wants his audience to get Old Covenant is going away. There's a new one coming. And is in many ways already here, he says. And so in response, there are various groups present that day, or those days when he's saying this. And and they begin to ask him in response, what should we do? Well, he tells them all generally, he says, share with those who are in need. And he tells the tax collectors to collect no more than they're authorized to take. And the soldiers, not to extort money from anyone, but to be content with their wages. And so the crowds begin to wonder if John was in fact the Christ. And they ask him this plainly, and he plainly denies it in verses 16 and 17 of Luke 3. But he points them to the one who was to come. He says, this one, this coming one, will baptize you not with water, but with the Holy Spirit and fire. See, I told you, John's disciples should have known of the Spirit's existence. And John says, the coming one is mightier than John. John, He says, I'm not worthy to untie his sandals. And then he switches the metaphor that he had used in verse 9. And he says that this coming one has a winnowing fork in his hand. He's ready to clear the, the threshing floor. To gather the wheat in his barn and the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. And then in verses 21 and 22 of Luke 3 Luke tells us that John baptized Jesus himself, and upon this act the heavens were opened, the Holy Spirit descended upon Jesus in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven saying, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. And so that's Luke 3, and a a, a really important sort of bit of context for understanding Pentecost and understanding what happens here in Acts 19. But then... If you jump ahead to Acts chapter 1, where we began back in February of this year, Luke tells us in Acts 1 that during the 40 days after Jesus' resurrection and before His ascension, so between the resurrection and ascension, 40 days, Jesus was teaching the apostles about the kingdom of God. He told them, don't depart from Jerusalem. Wait for the promise of the Father about which He had told them, saying, John Baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Pentecost was therefore, among other things, a matter of judgment. In the giving of the Spirit at Pentecost, Jesus cleared the threshing floor, separating the wheat and the chaff, bringing blessing to the grain and destruction to the chaff. In other words, the coming of John the Baptist through the birth, life, uh, which Jesus had been born before John's ministry began, but we'll say John's ministry and Jesus' ministry to include His life, death, and resurrection, culminating in the giving of the Spirit at Pentecost, really finalizing at the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D., it all marked God's judgment of the nation of Israel and the old covenant system and kingdom. And it also marked the establishment of the new covenant and kingdom In fulfillment of everything that the Old Covenant had hoped for, but could never bring about. To say it in yet another way, Pentecost, with the Holy Spirit of fire, indicates the burning up of the chaff of those clinging to the Old Covenant, namely their ethnicity as children of Abraham, and it indicates the refining and purifying and cleansing blessing of the grain of those clinging to the promises of the New Covenant. Namely, their hope of blessing as being spiritual children of Abraham by faith in the Messiah. So the judgment-bringing nature of Pentecost is seen in these passages, particularly in Acts 2, 10, and 19, in this peculiar phrase, this speaking in tongues. Now, I don't have time to explain all of why this is. We've sort of done that in, in other sermons, but we'll, we'll sort of sum it up this way. Speaking in tongues in all three of these passages seems to very clearly refer to human languages. Specifically, I would argue, in contrast to the native language of the Jews, being uh, Hebrew, uh, and the, 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 the primary language in which the Old Testament was written and the Old Covenant was facilitated in, in Hebrew. It's a sign against unbelieving Israel that indicated that the kingdom of God could only be entered by faith in Messiah and that all nations were now welcome to come in. Remember, Paul himself makes this explicit connection in 1 Corinthians 14 where he quotes Isaiah 28, which states that the proclaiming of the oracles of God in foreign non-Hebraic tongues was a sign to Israel That God had rejected them since they had rejected Him. It was not, whatever else you want to say about it, an unintelligible, heavenly, private prayer language. It was language that could be understood, even if needing to be interpreted. So the question then is how does Acts 19 tie in with Pentecost? We've still not really gotten there. I love this quote from John Stott on the Ephesians 12 here, as he calls them. They experienced a many, Pentecost. Better, Pentecost caught up with them. Better still, they were caught up into it as its promised blessings became theirs. Another commentator says that these were men caught out of sequence. Now, we've already seen the point here. I think it's already being worked out in Paul's ministry In the synagogues. Just last week, we saw when he was in Corinth, two rulers of the synagogue, Crispus and Sosthenes, come to faith in Messiah. But Acts 19 serves as the final epoch shifting event of the baptism of the Spirit that began at Pentecost and is in some ways concluded here, where God ties up the loose ends of this salvation history event of Pentecost, where the Old Covenant is done away with, and the New Covenant is set upon the world in full. And because the question is, could be, very well be for many, but what about those who had been baptized into John's baptism? He was a forerunner of the Messiah. Was, are, are those Jews needing to come full circle, full faith in the Messiah in order to be saved? The answer is yes. Pentecost is not a repeatable event today. I've said this already, but I think it bears repeating. From John the Baptist all the way to the destruction of the physical temple in Jerusalem in 70 A.D., God was progressively revealing this once-for-all judgment against Old Testament Israel by bringing the Old Covenant to an end and establishing His forever kingdom of priests to serve in and expand His temple kingdom in the New Covenant, built upon and ruled by the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, the Spirit comes upon the Jews at Pentecost and then progressively brings in uh, Samaritans in Acts 8, brings in Gentiles in Acts 10, and then circles back around in Acts 19 to affirm not only that these Jewish disciples of John need to come to Christ fully to be saved, but that Jews at all can still be saved. Right? Yes, the message has gone out to the ends of the earth. Yes, God has rejected Old Covenant Israel for its, its faith, faithlessness and its rejection of Him and His Messiah and His Anointed One. But Jewish people then and today can still be saved through faith in Jesus. And yet, what the rest of the passage bears out, starting in verse 8, we see that this is, sadly, there is there's still a significant amount of resistance from the Jewish people in Paul's day, especially, and we see it also in ours. And yet, the passage also makes clear, before we get to verse 20, that God is still working in Jews and Gentiles. So, that's the first bit. That's the first part of this passage, 1 to 7. Uh, that's the long part. This next part, despite being uh, more verses, I think, will go f- quicker. Um, but that's the first part where, where Paul brings this finality to Pentecost and, and completes Apollos' ministry. Look at me in the second part of verses 8 to 20 there where we see Paul, having once more been party to God's establishment of the fruit of Pentecost in this small church of Jewish disciples in Ephesus, he ventures on, per usual, to the synagogue for more recruits. Yet he meets stubbornness and unbelief, which isn't unusual for him at this point, and so he withdraws with uh, the disciples, and he reasoned in the hall of Tyrannus, marking his usual second move to take the gospel to the Gentiles. Anytime he would go to a new city, he would go to the synagogue first, uh, and then when he was finally run out, he would take the gospel to the Gentiles. And we're told that he did this for two years. And it was to such an effect that everyone in Asia, both Jews and Gentiles, heard the word of the Lord. And so I don't know that we are to take that to mean that they all believed, but that his ministry had such far-reaching implications that everyone there, that it was far and wide, the word of the Lord had, had gone into Asia, here. But not only did God give him words to speak, but in verses 11 and 12, we see that He gave him extraordinary miracles to perform uh, in order to give testimony to the the veracity of the words that he spoke. With new revelation in the Bible, often what we saw came uh, extraordinary miracles. And so, Paul's miraculous works, and, and some of it was not... It wasn't even things he was doing on purpose. He's just walking down the street. Someone rubs a handkerchief on his arm and, and runs off and heals somebody and, or casts a demon out of them. And so, seeing this, a group of uh, these itinerant Jewish exorcists are prompted to engage in some work, uh, some further work of their own. And they, they see the, the usefulness of this name, Jesus, and so they invoke the name Jesus in their work. And Luke records them as saying things like, I adjure you by the name of the Lord Jesus, whom Paul proclaims. And yet, Luke tells us it does not go super well for them. These men are frauds, charlatans, and the evil spirit makes clear that he doesn't answer to them. Jesus I know, he says. Paul I recognize. But I have no idea who you guys are. And the man with the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them. So they fled out of the house, naked and wounded. Now, it's not exactly clear what the evil spirit intended here. But it's like we saw in Acts 16. The result is probably not what he, it, was imagining. The result is wild, right? The news of these, these uh Jewish exorcist getting beaten to a pulp by one man possessed by a demon. The news spreads, and what happens? Fear falls upon all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. And the name of Jesus was extolled. And what's more, Those who had believed, they came and confessed and divulged their practice of magic. They brought their books with them and burned them in the sight of all. And we're told it was about 50,000 pieces of silver was the value of these books. And then Luke concludes this section in verse 20. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. I want to draw a couple lessons from this for us. Um, First, Jesus is not a good luck charm. He's not a talisman that can be waved around and and, and used by anyone who wishes to make a name for himself. That's what these, these men wanted to do, right? They wanted to make a name for themselves. They were willing to use the name of Jesus to advance their own names. But the spirit, this evil spirit, denies them such an honor. Again, he says, I know Jesus and I recognize Paul, but I have no earthly idea who you are. Your name is nothing. And this frail use of the name of Jesus doesn't scare me either. The truth is, the Spirit knew Jesus better than they did. And he trembled. But at these men, it had no fear. These men had no lot in the Lord. They were merely claiming Jesus to have some magic power, and yet it left them defenseless and easy pickings for the evil spirit. Think about Simon the magician back in Acts 8. This is the kind of thing that he wanted. He saw Peter and the apostles working miracles, and he says, I want that. I can do some cool things with that. And Peter says, you better be careful. And we see why. Simply using Jesus as you know, a lucky rabbit's foot or something will actually only put you in harm's way because Jesus' name will not be dishonored. And that's what happens here. His name, they, they trivialize it. They want to trivialize it. But the spirit, this evil spirit, won't let them. But it only results in Jesus' name being extolled. And so that brings us to a second lesson to learn from this. We live in an embattled world. Not a new point for our, our working in Acts, but it's important to see here. This Spirit really empowers this man to beat seven men senseless and to run them out of the house naked. Now, if, if you're here this morning trained in uh, some kind of martial art, then that may not be that impressive to you, right? Maybe you're like, seven, I could do 12. But I don't think I'm going out on a limb here to say that if you were to take, just take eight regular dudes, eight regular guys, and you divide them up, seven against one. My money every time is on the seven to take the one if, if it comes to fisticuffs, right? But that's not what happens here. There's a real power. I, I don't think this man was being recruited by the UFC or anything like that. He was empowered by this evil spirit to conquer these frauds and he beat them, stripped them, and ran them out of the house. The power that belongs to the kingdom of darkness is real, and yet, as this passage makes clear, and as we saw uh, very clearly in Acts 16, the power that belongs to the kingdom of darkness is limited and vanishing. The Spirit may have conquered these frauds, but it could not conquer the name of Jesus. It only led to the advancement of God's kingdom and the extolling and heralding of the name of Jesus. This event so troubled people regarding witchcraft and magic and the dark arts and all those things that they turned to the Lord and they gave up their practices, of the magic arts, at a great cost to themselves, 50,000 pieces of silver, but they had come to know the Lord who conquers all. So how do we tie this all together? Somewhat briefly, pretty briefly. Apollos' ministry was fruitful but incomplete. And so it necessitated Paul's ministry as he came in behind him to complete it and to to bring about the the fullness of, of Pentecost. The giving of the Spirit at Pentecost in Acts 2 and its reiterations in 8, 10, and 19 demonstrate that Jesus is the new covenant temple of God who joins Himself to believers by catching them up into his life by the Spirit to share in the priestly work of serving in and expanding the boundaries of the temple to the ends of the earth. And this nation of priests consists of both Jews and Gentiles and everyone in between. And what's more, even though God had judged unbelieving Israel, those who were clinging to the old covenant system, despite that, there was, there was still hope held out for jews who would turn to faith in jesus and so in this work of temple expansion we see in the rest of this passage that god is in the business of rescuing people from the clutches of evil and he does it in ways that often surprise us greatly a bunch of sorcerers and witches is not who you probably would think first and foremost Would be coming in droves into the kingdom of God. But that's exactly what happens here. God's word continued to increase, prevail mightily. The name of Jesus is being extolled despite the frauds, the fraudulent activity of these Jewish exorcists, and despite the the violent outburst of this evil spirit, Jesus' name in the end is what stands forth. And so we must not engage in or take evil lightly, but we can rejoice that even when evil seems to have the upper hand, like one demon-possessed man beating the tar out of seven other guys, King Jesus is still ruling. He will not allow his name to be mocked. He will not allow his name to be used as a lucky rabbit's foot or a talisman or some kind of lucky charm in any way, but neither will he allow the kingdom of evil to win. Christ's name was extolled. Not the devil's. And so, my friends, the gates of hell are trembling as the word of the Lord continues to increase and to prevail mightily. So let us, with great hope and confidence, continue to march forward, to proclaim Christ to each other, to our neighbors, and to people all over the world, because that's what God is doing, bringing in many sons and daughters into His kingdom through faith in the Messiah and the empowering witness of His Spirit.